Good morning to all of you and Merry Christmas. This time of year is always interesting for us as a young church. We have a lot of people that leave town uh, for the holidays, and then we get to see some new faces as well. So if you are new with us today, visiting from out of town, a special word of welcome to you. It's good to have you, and we pray that your heart has been stirred and that you have been encouraged in the faith up to now, and we certainly pray that that will continue. But if that's going to happen for any of us in the room, if anything good would happen as we look to the Bible, we need the Lord's help. You've heard that a lot this morning already, the acknowledgement of how needy we are. It's true. And so join me now, if you would, as we go to the Lord one more time, uh, before we preach the word anyway, the word is preached, and let's ask him for his help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do acknowledge our need of you. Uh, we praise you and we thank you that all you require of us is to see our need for Jesus and then to trust completely in him. And we thank you for his perfect life that he lived as a result of taking on flesh. We thank you for his atoning death by which he atoned for our sins, and we thank you and praise you for his triumphant resurrection, because we know that sin and death and hell and Satan have been defeated, and that we will be with you forever. This is something that you have done. We have not done this. And so as we look to your word this morning and we think about the fact that you are the God who has worked salvation, we pray that you would be with us by your spirit. Give us eyes to see your truth as it really is. Give us hearts that would love it and rejoice over what's in your word. We pray that we would be stirred to think of what you have done for us and that out of that gratitude and love to you, that we would then live in a way that honors you. Do all of these supernatural, awesome things in us today, we pray. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we talk about this pretty regularly here. The reality that the Bible is a story about God. It's a book about God and what he has done. Human beings are in it, no doubt. But this book is the Lord's book. It is about his plan of redemption that he accomplished through his son, and it is about the glory that he is due as a result of having accomplished salvation. And because that's true, that the Bible is a book about what God has done, when we gather like this, what we most fundamentally need to hear are the things that the Lord has accomplished. We need to fundamentally hear more about what God has done than what we must do. And whatever we are called to do, because there's stuff that we are called to do, no doubt. There are commands in Scripture, and we want to uphold those. Those things that we are called to do are always in response to what God has already done. We don't do anything that then causes God to move. We respond to what the Lord has accomplished. Christianity, as has been obvious even in our service, as we've confessed a creed from the fourth century, as we sang a song, let all mortal flesh keep silence, the words are from the fifth century. Our faith is grounded in history. This is not a religion based on folk tales or moral stories. Our religion is grounded in history and it is based on news. The good news is just that. It's news. It's a proclamation of something that happened in time and space. So around the Christmas season, we celebrate something. We celebrate something that happened. God the Son, who was in the beginning with God and also was God, took on human flesh 2,000 years ago and was born as a human baby 
Truly man and truly God. That incarnation of God the Son is what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, here at CBC, you guys maybe get tired of me saying this, but that's okay. I'll take the, the darts, the shots. We celebrate, whether you realize this or not, we celebrate the incarnation, the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ every single Lord's Day. We give unique attention, perhaps, in seasons of the year, but our worship always is grounded in those things that happened in history. And the greatest thing about the news of what God has done is that it's finished. It's over. There's nothing left to be done other than to hear it and receive it and believe it and trust it, namely to trust Jesus. What has God done? Quite simply, he has worked salvation. So let's consider that together this morning as we look to the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you don't have a copy of the scripture with you, no big deal. Uh, maybe if you have a cell phone, you could download a Bible app, even right now. We will also put the verses from Psalm 98 on the screen to help you. Uh, we will be looking at the entirety of Psalm 98 this morning. You will be helped by being able to refer to the text in some form or fashion. So now that you've had a moment to flip in a physical Bible or maybe turn your iPad on to Psalm 98, I will read God's word for us. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word today and every day. So I have three points for our consideration this morning. That's a, I think, at least I'm told, a pretty Baptist thing to do. I rarely pull it off for you, so you're welcome. Merry Christmas, gift wrapped and everything. Three points to consider. We'll take them one at a time, so I'm not going to give them all to you right now. Point number one should be of no shock to anyone. You'll all be still sitting in your chairs. The Lord has worked salvation. Point one, the Lord has worked salvation. What better news in the world is there than that for us to consider this morning, December the 23rd? 2018. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3, truth and advertising so that nobody's worked up. This will by far be the longest of the three points. So just track with me. Pray that you can, by spirit, track with God's word as well. Put your eyes on verse 1, where the psalmist writes that we are to sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. That new song language is very similar to Psalm 33, which we considered recently here at CBC, but it's also very similar, the same language that's used in Revelation chapter 5, the consummation of God's plan of redemption. That should cue you into something, that in view, and we'll be thinking about this a lot throughout our time together this morning, the ultimate consummation of God's redemptive plan is in view in Psalm 98, and we'll keep looking at aspects of that. But that new song should trigger. Yes, that's exactly what we will be singing around the throne of God in the new heavens and the new earth with people from every tribe and language and nation present. Something big is going on. You see that the reason that the Lord is to be praised with a new song is because he has done marvelous things. Namely, he has accomplished salvation. His right hand, you see this, the second part of verse 1, 
His right hand and his holy arm had worked salvation for him. Now, in the immediate context, when the psalmist would have written this psalm, we do not know who the author is, and that is absolutely okay. The people of Israel would have been called to look back on the ways that God had delivered them in the past. You can tell that by the way it's written. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. He has done great things for his people. Israel, think on what the Lord your God has done. What might be in view there? I mean, maybe something like the Exodus, that he had worked for his people in delivering them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. He had given them the promised land and conquered nations in front of them. He had constantly been working for them. So for them to be told, God has done great things, praise him, is only appropriate. Now, from our vantage point, see, we want to consider that immediate context when the psalmist would have written this, and we also know that God ultimately is the author of the Bible. And so, as we look at this from the other side of the cross, between the first coming of the Messiah and his second coming, it's appropriate that we would look back on what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Yes, there were great works of salvation that God accomplished for his people before the Messiah came, the Exodus being the main one. But even that great deliverance out of bondage in Egypt pointed to something far greater. The Exodus that Jesus would accomplish in saving us from our sins saving us from bondage to sin and Satan, saving us from hell. It's appropriate that we would look back and in this text think, okay, Christ is in view. Let's put our eyes on verse number two as we keep moving forward. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now this is important. Alan alluded to this earlier. He's not in the room presently. That's okay. He can hear it online if Nothing else. With the way this is worded, the Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness. God's salvation and righteousness should be seen as one and the same thing. God's salvation and God's righteousness should be seen as one and the same thing. It's not as though God has made known his salvation over here and his righteousness over here as though they are two distinct separate things. They are not. God's salvation and righteousness are not separate things. Think with me for just a moment. Why is that the case? Why is that true? Well, first of all, high level, God is righteous always. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is righteous. His salvation is righteous salvation. He saves righteously. That's true. A second thing to consider in how God's salvation and righteousness are one and the same. When we say that God is righteous, we mean that everything he does is right. We mean that he's completely good. We mean that he is the greatest and highest being in the universe. None greater. And an aspect of all of that, his always doing right, being completely good, being the greatest being in the universe, an aspect of all of that is the fact that as he has said, he is the merciful and gracious God who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet by no means will clear the guilty. That's who he is. Salvation and his righteousness can't be bifurcated. They can't be separated. Thirdly, just thinking about God's righteousness and his salvation being one and the same. This is the kicker. This is like if you're like, nah, I don't know, bro. This, this is it. Signed, sealed, and delivered right here. God's salvation, namely the gospel, right? The good news. What is it? How does the apostle Paul describe it? The gospel is a revelation of God's own righteousness that is counted to sinners through faith in the Messiah, Jesus. So the gospel, the good news, salvation is exactly God's own righteousness counted to us 
by faith in Christ. His righteousness is the way sinners are saved. So when we see verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation, he's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, he has revealed the good news. He has revealed salvation, he has revealed righteousness, he has revealed redemption. Because he is the righteous God, the redeemer, the savior of the world. Think about the prophet Habakkuk. He says, the righteous, the righteous one shall live by his faith. The apostle Paul, as I've already said, Romans 1, 16 and 17 writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is how God has always worked, right? Genesis chapter 15, a man named Abram, who would later be renamed Abraham, God made promises to him. We're told in Genesis 15 and verse 6 that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Paul has argued that God is a righteous judge. He rewards good. He punishes evil. The problem is everybody's wicked. There's not a good person on the planet. So now in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God equals salvation. Lest we ever try to separate the two. Because sometimes we talk in a way that really isn't appropriate. When we'll talk about, well, it's almost like God's righteousness is pitted over and against the fact that he's merciful. Not true. God's righteousness is the means of salvation. God's righteousness is the good news in that that righteousness is counted to sinners through faith in Christ. Praise God that that's true. The law and the prophets, as the Apostle Paul says, bear witness to the righteousness of God that is to be, re excuse me, be received through faith in the Messiah. This matters, friends, because it's how you should read your Bible. It's how we should read our Bibles. Did the law, so like the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, and even the rest of the law that was given in the first five books of Scripture, did that law reveal God's holiness? Absolutely. Did it reveal God's character? Absolutely. Did it reveal what pleases the Lord? Yes. And the point of all of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets was to tell the story of redemption and to tell the story of how God's own righteousness would be credited to his sinful people through the Messiah who would come and accomplish salvation. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. It is precisely through God's own righteousness that salvation comes. Verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. We read in verse 2 that God has made known his salvation. He has certainly made it known to the house of Israel. Again, remember the immediate context that the psalmist is in. He's encouraging the congregation of Israel to look back on the deliverance that God has worked for them. And they're being called to praise God for what he has done on their behalf. He has remembered Israel. God made promises, big ones, to Abraham and to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob. And God is a promise-keeping God. And so God's salvation, God's great work of deliverance and redemption has been revealed to Israel first. God, for a long period of redemptive history, he worked primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, he worked in and through a particular people. In the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that large portion of our Bibles, that's what we see. God working primarily, not exclusively, in and through the nation of Israel. But then in the second part of verse 3, we see 
that all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So it did not stop just within the nation of Israel. It's not just Israel that has seen what the Lord has done. The ends of the earth, all of the peoples, the nations have seen what our God has done. Now, this means for sure that in the context of what the psalmist is saying, without doubt, this means that the ends of the earth, peoples from all over the earth, have seen how God has worked in Israel. They would have observed or heard or learned of what the Lord had done in this small people that he had made his own. The world saw it. We read about it in the books of Scripture in the Old Testament. We read of what God did. God did marvelous things for this tiny people, insignificant in every way. Don't ever forget, because see yourself in this too. Don't ever forget Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, where Moses tells the people that God did not choose you because you were something. He did not choose you because you were great, because you were large. In fact, you were the smallest of all the peoples. You were insignificant in every way. Do you want to know why God loves you? He loves you because he loves you. Period. The world had seen what God had chosen to do in this small, insignificant people called Israel. But it means more than that, these verses. Again, we look at this in the context of redemptive history. Yes, the nation saw how God worked in Israel, but it also means that the ends of the earth, all peoples have seen two things, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the nations, the ends of the earth, have seen that the Lord is the only Savior of the world. The Lord has said a number of things about this. Numbers 14, 21, Habakkuk 2, 14. God has said that the knowledge of his glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He will be famous throughout the world. No questions asked. It's going to happen. The Lord works in such a way, he always has, that his power would be displayed and his name would be heralded throughout the world. Think about what he said to Pharaoh. Right, the leader, the ruler of Egypt. This is in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. This is arguably the most powerful man on the planet at the time, the ruler of the nation of Egypt. God says through Moses to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power and so that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth. God has always aimed to do this. His plan has always been that the nations, the world, the globe would know him, would see him as redeemer and savior and God. God's work in Israel, in other words, friends, even in the context of Psalm 98, before the Messiah came, God's work in Israel, namely redemption and salvation and adoption, all of those awesome things was never meant to simply be observed by the nations. That wasn't the point. As though the nations, the other people groups around Israel would just look at what the Lord was doing in Israel and say, oh, that's pretty interesting. Or they would look at it and say, oh, that's pretty cool what that little tribal deity is doing over there for his people, Israel. No way. The nations were to look at what God was doing in and for Israel and say, I don't know much, but I know that the Lord is God. I don't know everything, but I know that he is the savior and redeemer of the world. And we too will worship him. That's the point. It was meant to bring, his work in Israel was meant to bring about the salvation of the nations. It was always his plan. This psalm, from our vantage point, as I've already said at least a couple of times, has God's ultimate plan of redemption in view, beginning with that new song language in verse 1. It has the consummation 
of redemption in view. We're going to keep thinking about this as we look at the psalm together. But for now, it's important that we would just hammer home the truth that God's plan of redemption has always been global in its scope. This matters for how we read Scripture and how we understand the unfolding of God's covenant of redemption. This is not just some academic debate or some ethereal conversation. This really does matter for you and me in terms of how we understand redemptive history. God, beginning with the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and plunged us all into ruin, God promised a redeemer would come. He promised that through the woman, one of her seed would come and he would crush the head of the serpent, the evil one. That was a prophecy of the coming Messiah right after the fall of man happened. That's huge. I mean, that, the significance of that, we'll think probably more about some of these things tomorrow night. Just a quick plug, come for Christmas Eve. A story of two Adams. We'll think about that together tomorrow. But right after the fall, God promises redemption, and then he begins to unfold that covenant of redemption. There are various facets of it. It's progressive in the way that he unfolds it, right? There are various other covenants underneath that covenant of redemption, all ultimately finding their fulfillment in the new covenant when Messiah would come, ultimately leading us, ending the story in the new heavens and the new earth with God forever. So what I'm about to say does not in any way, should not in any way be understood to be slighting the nation of Israel or an ethnic Jew in any way. I want to be very clear. Any, any Jewish person who would profess faith in Christ would agree with what I'm going to say. God's end game, his end game, was never Israel. It was never Israel. Some people, there are streams of theology, and there are some individuals, even within the evangelical church, who will talk about Israel and the church as though they're very distinct and separate things. Some people even to the point of saying that Israel is saved in a different way than the church is. That's an extreme form. But there are many in the church who will talk about Israel as God's people, and then the church is like some afterthought, like parenthetical addition to God's plan to redeem. Like there's Israel... And then there's kind of the church over here. That's not, friends, again, I'm having to talk with anybody about this. I don't know that there would be much disagreement in this room. That's not how we should look at it. That's not how we should understand God's plan of redemption. The church, and namely, the church just meaning assembly, same word for the congregation of Israel in the Old Testament. The assembly in the New Testament is the goal. Ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth, the throng around the throne of God, is the goal. The multitude that no one can count from every tribe and language and nation is the goal. Always has been the goal of God. God began by adopting a particular people and working primarily through them for a long time with the aim of saving all kinds of people to have them around his throne forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Israel was a type of something even greater to come. Israel itself and the way God worked for Israel points to the way that God would work in the world globally. We love our Jewish friends. We respect and should the fact that God worked through that nation, out of grace, sure. But he worked in that nation for a long time. The Messiah is a Jew. And at the same time, God is a God of all peoples and has always planned to save all kinds of people. Both are true, and they don't contradict each other. And it's really cool to see when our Jewish friends maybe were resistant to professing Jesus as Messiah, and they come to faith in him and are counted righteous just like us Gentiles are. 
It's an awesome thing. And Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile. He is that awesome. We have him in common. He tears down every barrier. That's why racism is so horrible. A lot can be said about that. Think about even God's promise to Abraham. To Abram. He wasn't Abraham yet. What were the things that he promised him? He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is greater than just Israel. Look toward the heavens, God says, and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be, massive in scope. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, a spiritual father to a multitude of nations. Those We've thought about this in the book of Galatians, right? We just went through this. Those of us who have trusted Messiah are children of Abraham by faith. Regardless of what our ethnicity is, we are children of Abraham because we trust Christ. Always God's plan to save the nations. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. This is the way to read Psalm 98. This is the way to read your whole Bible. There is one divine author of Scripture. He used human beings to write exactly what he wanted written down, and they were really writing. It's pretty remarkable to think. Just like right now, we trust he's using me by his spirit, grace, to speak God's word for us, me included. I'm under the word like you. But he doesn't usurp my personality. He inhabits it and uses people. That's what he did in inspiring people to write Scripture, but God ultimately we know is the divine author of Scripture and he purposed from before time began to redeem a people through his son. So my question would be, how in the world would that knowledge not inform how we read this book? It has to. It has to. And we save ourselves from a multitude of errors if we go to Scripture with those lenses on. Just before we transition out of this most lengthy point one into point two, which would be much briefer, just think with me for a moment about how remarkable, it's a remarkable thought to think about those promises that God made to Abram thousands of years ago. Consider, look at the heavens, Abram. Consider the stars if you're able to count them. Your offspring are going to be that numerous. Pretty remarkable to think that, for real, this is not sentimentality, this is just real, that you and I, we, were among that number then. When God said that, he had you in view. He had me in view. The God who hung the stars like we would hang curtains and knows them each by name, knows our names too and always has. That's a remarkable and astonishing thought for you and for me this Christmas season. Praise the Lord that he is that kind of God. He is huge and the universe is huge and we are really insignificant. And yet he knows our name and he has purposed to save us by his son. His son came and saved us. That's how much he loves us. Praise the Lord. He has worked salvation. It's done. Point two. You can pat yourself on the back for making it through point one. That might be some kind of record. I'm not sure. Point number two, if number one was the Lord has worked salvation, number two is the response of God's people. The response of God's people. So question, what's the appropriate response to the revelation of God's salvation? What's the appropriate response of, to, excuse me, the revelation of God's righteousness? Of course, it's what? Praise. Praise. Song. Joyful noises, gratitude, thanksgiving, all of the above. It is a true statement that all right theology, study of God, necessarily leads to doxology, praise. If our theology doesn't lead to praise, we're missing something. Theology that we've been considering this morning is robust 
And it leads to praising the Lord for who he is and for what he's done. All the earth, you see in verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth, break forth into joyous song and sing praises. We see here, not to get anybody too worked up, it's good to use musical instruments. Look at this, verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. It's not only permissible, but we could say also a good idea to use instruments in praising God. We need, basically, the way that I would put it is, we need to use everything at our disposal in order to praise God in the way that he's worthy of. It's not as though, on the one hand, maybe the human voice is inadequate to praise him, and we need to add instruments. I don't know. That's a great way to look at it. But it's like, hey, if you've got something that makes a beautiful melody, why not use it for God? He's awesome and worthy of all praise. We obviously use musical instruments here. No surprise to anyone. The appropriate response always from us to what the Lord has done is praise and gratitude and thanksgiving and humility. I could talk for a long time about how this psalm even models for us how we ought to think about godly living, how we ought to think about holy living even, how we ought to think about our praise to the Lord. This is not a matter of us doing good things or praising God in order to earn something. We've already thought about that. Can't be done. We praise God and obey God and do good things because of what God has already finished. This psalm models that for us so well. This is why heralding the good news of righteousness completely through faith in Christ, apart from any work, this is why that gospel does not produce lawless people. That gospel produces transformed lives. That gospel produces worshipers of God. And perhaps the issue, if we don't have worshipers and we don't have transformed lives, it's not that we need to heap a bunch of burdens on people so they'll take it seriously. It's maybe that we've not heralded the gospel or maybe they haven't believed it. I could talk about that for a while, and I'm going to refrain. Praise the Lord for the way this works. Our good works, our obedience, as we've already thought about, our praise to him is always in response to what he has already done. Always. We are never the initiators. We are never the movers. God is, and we respond appropriately. Let's move now to point number three. I told you two would be briefer. Point three. Two is the response of God's people. Point three is the response of the creation. Wholesale. The response of the creation. As I said earlier, and I've said many times, the consummation of redemption is in view in this psalm. It's going to be obvious in these verses. Let's put our eyes on verse seven. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world, excuse me, the world and all those who dwell in it would also roar, right, and praised in adoration to God. Let the rivers, figurative language here, let the rivers clap their hands. The rivers are going to praise God. Let the hills, again, figurative, sing for joy. The hills are worshiping and praising God. They're going to sing together for joy because the Lord comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness. There's that word again. And he will judge the peoples with equity. There is so much to be said here. The creation itself, literally, is to praise God for his righteousness, his salvation. Perhaps a good place to start would be to consider the words of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 12, for those who want to write the reference down, Isaiah writes about this consummation of God's plan of redemption, what he's going to do for his people, right? This great salvation that's coming that will be finalized at the end of history. Isaiah says, for you, the people of God, shall go out in joy and shall be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field 
shall clap their hands. When God's people are led out in peace and joy, when salvation is consummated, literally the world, the created world, will burst forth in praising God for what he's done. The mountains and the hills will sing. The rivers and the trees will clap their hands because what God has done is so awesome. It's probably obvious to you that we can say this. The creation even now, in its beauty, it glorifies God. No doubt. I mean, we live in a very pretty area by, by God's grace, right? The topography is beautiful. You go look at the mountain ranges around you. You go for a hike. You go look at a waterfall. Anything like that. You watch the sunset over the Blue Ridge Mountains, and you think, man, God is, he's pretty awesome. Like, how creative, how huge, how majestic, how wonderful is he? That's right and good. The creation glorifies him now. But it's obvious that what the psalmist and what Isaiah are writing about is something bigger than that. They're writing about Romans 8 kind of realities. You remember what Paul says in Romans 8 about the creation and God's plan of redemption, right? Remember these words. Romans 8, 19 through 22, again for the note takers in the room. Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the sons of God to be led out in peace, right? For the creation was subjected to futility when Adam and Eve sinned. The world was cursed. Not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, close quote. That's what Paul says. That's what this is about. The creation is being set free from its bondage to corruption when God's plan of redemption is consummated. The entire created order is longing for this. It's like the creation itself can't contain itself because the day has come. The revealing of the sons of God. Bondage is over forever. All is right Everything is made new. It's also clear, just continuing to track through these verses, that the consummation of all things is in view when we read about the language of God coming to judge the world, right? End of verse 9. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That's end of history kind of language, right? Are there measures of his judgment now? Sure. But his, this kind of language is final judgment language. He's going to come and administer perfect justice. Think of the reasons that the Lord should be praised, just given in Psalm 98. There are a number. Verse 1, the Lord has worked salvation. He should be praised. Verse 2, he has made his salvation known. He should be praised. Verse 2 as well, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He should be praised. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to Israel. He's kept his promises. He should be praised. Verse 3, again, all the ends of the earth have seen his salvation. He should be praised. And now we can add this. He comes to judge the earth. He should be praised. He will judge the world with righteousness. He should be praised. And he will judge the peoples with equity. He should be praised for that. The Lord will judge the world, all peoples without exception. He will do so, you see it in the text, with righteousness and equity. Those are two things that don't exist in this fallen world in which we live right now. Perfect righteousness and perfect equity are foreign things to us. They're not here right now. God will judge the world. To use the language of the confessions, God will judge all men on principles of righteousness. True statement. What does that mean? It means a lot, but it certainly does not mean less than this. Righteousness is a requirement of the new heavens and the new earth. Righteousness is a requirement 
of the new heavens and the new earth. Anybody who will be resurrected to live with God in his presence forever, see him as he is, without the presence of sin and evil, in perfect relationship with one another, all of those things in perfect relationship with the creation, anyone who's going to be there, the requirement is righteousness. There is no impurity there. God, we know this, right? God never lowers his standard. He doesn't grade on a curve. Notice, too, that he judges all men the same way. That's what equity means. He judges on principles of righteousness, namely righteousness is required, and he judges all men the same way. Everybody is held to the same standard. There are no favorites. Nobody gets in the back door. There is no curve. There are two kinds of people. There are those people who are judged by God in righteousness and equity to be perfectly righteous. They are declared righteous. And then there are people who will be judged to be wicked. One of two. There is no third way. There's no middle category. So this is precisely, friends, when you read things like that, again, nobody's going to be shocked. When you read things like that, that God is coming to judge, he should be praised for it. Yes, he's holy. He will administer perfect justice. The only way that God coming to judge the world is good news for anyone is the gospel of Jesus Christ, full stop. There's no way that God coming in judgment could ever be good for you if you're standing in your own merit. It's a horrifying thought. If you had to stand on what you have done this morning, it's not even noon yet. No chance at all, let alone a lifetime of struggle, sin, omission, not doing the things that I should be doing. If you were to count iniquities, oh Lord, who could stand? Answer, no one. This is why that beautiful harmony and synthesis of God's righteousness and his salvation, this is why it's so good for us. The righteousness of God is our only hope of being saved. The righteousness of the God-man, Jesus Christ, born under the law of woman, fulfilling the law perfectly, atoning for the sin of his people, and conquering death, in hell and Satan forever, it's the only hope we have. It's a remarkable thought. The righteousness of God through the accomplishment of Jesus is ours, counted to my account completely by faith. It is a legal declaration. Yes, I said it. The Bible uses that framework. Judgment, it's legal. And we are legally counted, declared to be righteous, not in and of ourselves, but in Jesus Christ we are. You want a sort of good news thought? Sort of like a little tweet, you know, for your Christmas edification? All of the righteousness that you would ever need in order to be with God forever was given to you the moment you trusted Christ. All of the righteousness that you or I would ever need was counted to us the moment that we trusted in Christ. That is scandalous news. This is how we can uphold God's law in all of its holiness, and yet at the same time proclaim salvation. We don't feel the need to relativize God's law and dumb it down and make it doable. It's not possible. Now, God's law guides our living, right? It reveals to us what's pleasing to God. It matters for us as believers. It's our perfect guide for life. But in terms of having to keep it perfectly in order to attain righteousness, we've been set free from that. So we can preach the law in all of its holiness, all of its glory, as we look to the one who fulfilled it in our place.
This is how James can say that if you've kept the entire law but fail in one point of it, you have become accountable for all of it. You've done everything perfect and you commit one sin under the law, you're guilty of breaking it all. James 2, 10 and 11. One of the reasons I get worked up when people act like James is talking about works righteousness. No way. That verse, amongst others, makes that crystal clear that that's not what he's doing. Maybe we'll preach through James at some point. But Paul in Galatians, that we just finished considering, if we accept any work of the law as meritorious in God's sight, we are then obligated to keep the whole law perfectly. If you want to keep any piece of the law, then Christ died for nothing. The righteousness of God revealed to us and counted to us through faith in Christ. That is the gospel. The righteousness of God revealed to us and counted to us through faith in Christ is the good news. And that, friends, is reason for praise this holiday season and every single day. We're going to conclude our service today, and we're also going to sing it tomorrow night with a song that's familiar to most called Joy to the World, excuse me, written by Isaac Watts hundreds of years ago. That song, while it has Christ's first coming in view, is really more about his second coming. It's about him coming back to consummate redemption. The rolling back of the curses, right? You think about that verse. No more let sin and sorrows grow, right? Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, right? Jesus rolls back the curse. Friends, we trust Christ. We rest in him and rely on him. We abide in him. We believe in him. We live in him. And so we can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come with confidence because we know that redemption has been finished by Jesus. The psalmist says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And we're getting ready to sing these words. He rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise again for your son and for your plan of redemption. You have worked salvation and you have revealed your righteousness and your salvation as they are one and the same. You have revealed this to the world. You are the only Savior and the only Redeemer. We pray that you would minister to us by your Spirit even as we turn to the Lord's table. That you, by your Spirit, would assure us together that we are good with you and that you are good with us through Christ. We pray that we would be filled with joy in knowing that we are yours. And we do pray that we would be thrilled even as we sing about the glories of your righteousness and the wonders of your love for us. We thank you for sending your son as we celebrate that in this Christmas season and as we celebrate very much his body and his blood broken and shed for us at this table. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.